Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 124, July 31st to August 6th, 1863. Last week, we had some smaller scale action in Louisiana. Jackson is put under siege as the immediate aftermath of the capture of Vicksburg in Mississippi. We also covered the entirety of the Ohio raid conducted by John Hunt Morgan, which will eventually result in his capture by Union forces. This week, we need to head back to the frontier and cover continued campaigns against the Sioux. Before we do that, though, we need to head back to Virginia and talk about the action happening following Lee's escape back into that state. But of course, we need to talk about Patreon content as well, and for this upcoming month here, August, we are going to do another movie review, another probably of the more famous Civil War movies, A Glory, starring Denzel Washington and Matthew Broderick, and pairs fairly nicely with what we talked about with our Fort Wagner assaults. I know a lot of things are happening pretty quickly here. They're kind of jumbled together, so we're going to be doing Glory, and then Next month, we'll be doing Ride with the Devil. So we have three pretty heavy hitters in terms of movies in a row that we'll be talking about, doing a synopsis on, talking about some historical accuracy points. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. Of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show, and they are greatly appreciated. This week, we will jump back into Virginia and the real conclusions to the Gettysburg campaign. When we last left off, we had Lee and his army successfully escape from Meade at Williamsport and Falling Waters. The Army of Northern Virginia will be in the northern or lower part of the Shenandoah Valley, forming back up. Montgomery Corse and his brigade would arrive to reinforce Pickett's heavily depleted division. Pickett's men in general were definitely in need of a morale boost. Obviously, they had suffered heavy casualties, and they had been tasked with guarding the federal prisoners. This was seen, actually, as a dishonor, and the men of Pickett's division would voice their opinion as such until Lee switched up the guards to Imboden's cavalry. While the army was forming up on the friendly Virginian soil, if you recall, David Gregg's division had been sent across the river a little too late, but they still could potentially have the opportunity to get into Lee's supply and communication lines. Grumble Jones would have cavalry in the vicinity, but Gregg's troopers were able to make it to Shepherdstown. The first main cavalry under Lieutenant Colonel Charles Smith would foray and run into Fitzhugh Lee's cavalry. While setting up on high ground near a place called Butler's Woods, the main men would put on a stubborn defense. Fitzhugh Lee, though, would have enough men to overwhelm the Federals. Smith would withdraw to a stone wall and hold that ground along with reinforcements from the rest of Irvin Gregg's brigade. While successfully holding off the Confederates, Gregg would have a problem, though. His division would be surrounded on three sides by the Confederates. Despite having his 3rd Brigade join Gregg and McIntosh, the division commander was forced to remove his men under darkness on a narrow road to safety. Both sides had suffered some 100 casualties during the fighting, with the Union troopers mostly seeing that number made up of prisoners. 
Now, besides cavalry in lieu of the Army of the Potomac, Meade had several contingents of militia, as well as reinforcements from other departments. This is another area where you have to feel for the guy. While on paper he outnumbers Lee following Gettysburg, he has a lot of replacement soldiers, some of whom are Pennsylvania militia put together by Darius Couch. These men were reluctant to leave their home state now that the danger had seemingly passed. In my mind, it would also be difficult to have a very aggressive pursuit of Lee. He's going back into territory that he's familiar with, terrain that he's familiar with. We know that he can have both good days fighting defensively and offensively, and Meade just doesn't have the right numbers. And there are a lot of comparisons between these army commanders. Obviously, McClellan always thought that he didn't have the numbers and he was criticized for that. Obviously, Hooker kind of thought the same. He needed more men. And we can see that Hooker is sort of right in this instance that he did need more guys to deal with Lee, especially when we look at his quote that he could defeat Lee, but he's not going to be able to drive home the victory. And that's exactly what's happening with Meade right now. The concept of total destruction of a Civil War army is pretty inaccurate. I think we don't think about that a whole lot, that it's a very Napoleonic concept. Armies being destroyed, Napoleon is able to wipe an army off the map, right? We talk about that, but in the Civil War, you really just don't see that. One of the areas, though, that the Union Army will draw strength on will be Benjamin Kelly and his West Virginia Department. Cavalry under William Averill and Kelly's infantry would harass the Confederates as they sat around Bunker Hill, Martinsburg, and Winchester. Lee would actually give Ewell the go-ahead to try to encircle Kelly and force a surrender out of the numerically inferior force, but the Federals would be warned by Union sympathizers and thus would be able to escape. Keep in mind that Ewell's forces are moving in the direction of Hedgesville, West Virginia, which is a little northwest of Martinsburg, while Kelly escapes across the Potomac. In the meantime, Meade would look for options to pursue Lee. The Loudoun Valley would be an open route. Much like with McClellan, he could box Lee in the Shenandoah and then make his way south toward Richmond if he wished. Also like McClellan, though, he was worried about rumors that the Army of Tennessee was reinforcing Lee to Halleck's frustration. With the way Jefferson Davis moved reinforcements around, it was not illogical to assume these rumors could be true, but for Halleck, it must have been deja vu, especially with the disapproval of the president. With McClellan especially, remember that he's always worried that PGT Beauregard is going to show up and called him the Cajun boogeyman, that he's going to show up and uh, reinforce Lee and thus turn the tables. There would be several gaps in the mountains we have already sort of discussed in the lead up to Gettysburg. Union cavalry would seek to secure several of them in the Loudoun Valley, including Ashby and Snickers Gaps. Snickers Gap would lead to Berryville, which is a little east of Winchester, while Ashby Gap is west of Upperville, which we talked about in the cavalry battles before getting into Pennsylvania. Because of fear of reinforcement, or worse, Lee taking the offensive again, Meade would be cautious. Yule's foray to the north of Martinsburg did nothing to lessen those fears as Meade thought it entirely possible that once in the Loudoun Valley, the Army of Northern Virginia would maneuver and cut him off from Washington. 
As a result, John Buford would secure the passes before his army would begin to move. Little did Buford know that, that the rebel army was also moving toward the strategic passes. With skirmishing around the Snickers and Ashby Gap, it was only logical that the further southern gaps would be next, those being Manassas and Chester Gap. While the Army of Northern Virginia in general began their move back to Culpeper Courthouse and the Rappahannock River, Montgomery Corps and Pickett's division would lead the way to secure the passes. Now, if you remember, Grumble Jones and Beverly Robertson had been charged with guarding these as their comrades trekked north. While the bulk of these brigades went to join the army, there had been some cavalry contingents left behind to continue this work. It was assumed by the infantry that these were still there, but in fact they were not. Corse would send the 17th Virginia to Manassas Gap, while the remainder of his brigade marched to Chester Gap. The 17th, under direct command of Major Robert Simpson, would stack arms on their arrival and engage in the activity of berry picking on July 21st. Wesley Merritt and elements of the Reserve Brigade would surprise the infantry, forcing them back into the gap in a more defendable position. A staff officer would ride hard to picket, begging for reinforcement. It would come in the form of Lewis Armistead's old brigade, arriving just in time to push back dismounted troopers trying to flank the 17th. Facing superior ranged weapons, the cavalry would withdraw. At Chester Gap, there would be no action as Corse's regiments, along with a supporting battery, would dissuade the Federal cavalry. For the moment, the rebels had accomplished their objectives, but the Federal cavalry was still going to remain where they were, probing and seeking a chance to harass the enemy. There would be more skirmishing around Chester Gap with William Gamble's brigade, but Pickett would deploy enough regiments to potentially flank the Northerners out of their positions, forcing them to withdraw. As Pickett's men move on, A.P. Hill's corps would be next in line. The brigade that had been under Rand's right would occupy Manassas Gap, Yule's corps close behind. If the skirmishing around the gaps told Meade anything, they were clear indications that Lee was now marching his army south. This did not mean, though, that he would not counterstrike the Army of the Potomac, which is really going to highlight the movements of Meade in this stage of the campaign. Cautiously, the Union Army would roll south. French and the 3rd Corps would arrive around Manassas Gap on July 23rd. If the gap could be exploited and Front Royal seized, then Meade surmised he might cut Lee's army in half. You remember how Front Royal was sort of the key to Jackson and his flanking maneuver in the Valley Campaign of 1862, where he eventually defeats Banks at Winchester. Now Longstreet and Hill had already moved on, so it would not be quite half, but Ewell's corps might be dealt with, and in so doing also deal a crippling blow to Lee. Wright's Georgians, who would lose their commanding officer early in the fight via wounding, would stand against seemingly a large amount of the Union army. This actually was not Rand's Wright himself, but rather Colonel Edward Walker, who had taken command. In a similar situation, French much like the rest of the Northern host, is dealing with many replacement officers. In Ward's division, de Trobriand was the only remaining brigade commander. You remember the Third Corps, of course, at Gettysburg being pushed out to Devil's Den and the Peach Orchard, so they are the focal point of a lot of the Confederate attacks, and thus they're going to be pretty down in terms of manpower. 
Any available officers have been sent to the Army, including Francis Spinola, commanding the Excelsior Brigade. Facing superior numbers, the Georgians would hold their ground for some time, delaying the enemy while reinforcements were on the way from Rhodes' division with Johnson not too far behind, although it would be some hard marching. O'Neill and his brigade would arrive, led by the sharpshooters under William Blackford. Spinola and the Excelsiors would charge the Georgians in the meantime, sustaining some casualties and taking a lower rise. Again, they would charge with some hand-to-hand combat against the defensive line. All the while, the New Yorkers were forced to charge over broken, tough terrain. Timely Southern artillery would pin down the Union regiments. Lack of support and the arrival of the reinforcements to the defenders would call off the action. The Union troops had started their attack later in the day, and they were still in a defensive posture in case there was an enemy counter-strike. Men from both North and South would write about how both sides were seemingly just going through the motions, especially compared to the fierce fighting at Gettysburg. There were some casualties, though, as the Confederates suffered some 183 compared to 93 Union losses. Under the cover of darkness, the Southerners would continue, Meade losing out on the last good chance to rout Lee before he made it back to the Rappahannock line. The first skirmishes at Manassas Gap started on the 21st and could have made a huge impact on the campaign if properly supported. Likewise, the action on the 23rd, also known as the Battle of Wapping Heights, was a missed opportunity for Meade. I find myself going back and forth these days, though. It is a little damning that Meade wrote critically of previous commanders and how they did not take aggressive approaches, so it's easy to then lay a lack of sympathy when the shoe is on the other foot. But once again, he is facing Lee with less than ideal command situations and troop strength, and he is also tasked with guarding Washington still. A bit of a toss-up, I think. Hopefully, by diving through this narrative, you have made your own opinion on the matter. There was a little skirmishing at Newby's between Custer's Cavalry and A.P. Hill, but other than that action, the campaign would end with Lee getting back to Culpeper Courthouse. Custer actually almost gets trapped by Rock Benning during the skirmishing, but is able to escape. While not necessarily the most eventful of days, I think it is important to talk about Lee's moving back into Virginia, and then back into friendly territory. For Lincoln and the War Department, it's clear that while Meade is the best general they've had at the helm, he is not going to be the one who wins the war. Most Civil War narratives will go Gettysburg, then skip all the way to Grant in the Wilderness, which I think is a little unfair. There will be more campaigning in 1863, which we will cover here in future episodes. Overall, though, I think also to point out is that Meade doesn't get his army likewise destroyed. He's still able to rebuild. Lee, on one hand, is able to rebuild, so you can see why President Lincoln is upset, but you can also see that Meade is able to still keep his army intact as well, which, considering Gettysburg is very different than other battles that some of these other generals had to go through, maybe the most real example you could call it, perhaps, would be Burnside and Fredericksburg. His army is greatly depleted after that, so and there needs to be a rebuilding process as well. So maybe you could kind of compare that, but really none of these commanders go through something that's like Gettysburg 
maybe McClellan and Antietam. Obviously, we talked about how it's a little bit deceptive how many troops he actually is able to bring to the field as well. So he is able to keep his army intact. So there's something to say about that. We have two continued actions out on the frontier between the U.S. forces and that of the Sioux. I think we had actually very briefly mentioned them when we talked about the Dakota War in Minnesota way back in 1862, although I also mentioned we would hit these here in a future episode. Well, here we are in the future, and we need to talk about them now. When we left off, the Dakota had been dispersed following their uprising. Little Crow was dead, and several had been executed, regardless of the level of guilt, as we pointed out during that rundown. While many were captured, having surrendered and moved back to lands elsewhere, there were some still at large. Actually, the U.S. military had to protect the prisoners, which included many women and children, from attempted massacres at the hands of white settlers, who wished to dispense some frontier vigilante justice. But while these individuals were neutralized as a threat, there were some continued raids by the Santee Sioux amongst others. John Pope, still in this region, would order Henry Hastings Sibley to mount a punitive expedition. Sibley had been promoted to the rank of Brigadier General, and is unique in that he probably is one of the only generals in the war to have been promoted as such, and does not see action against the Confederacy. He will have over 3,000 men, which is at the time the largest army to combat Native Americans. This would include a unit of mountain rangers, the 6th, 7th, and 10th Minnesota Infantry Regiments, and a battery of artillery. For much of the march, they would not find the Sioux, but they would come across a Matisse trapper who would inform them of a large settlement. Standing Buffalo was the overall chief of the village, which included many dwellings, but the complexity of the Sioux became apparent. While most of those gathered did not participate in the uprising, nor did they raid the white settlements, there were some in the encampment who were raiding, or had participated in the uprising. While Sibley did decide to take a smaller amount of his force, he reasoned that those who had no part in the raiding would decide to negotiate. Standing Buffalo would concur and try to negotiate. Scouts and members of the mounted troops would meet at a rise called Big Mound. While the discussions were going on, a doctor, Josiah Weiser, was shot and killed by a member of the party who were more inclined to make war. Sibley would regroup with his forces before engaging the Sioux. Artillery was used against those warriors hiding in the defiles. While infantry engaged the warriors, the mounted troops were also brought up to great effect. Most of the Sioux would flee with the cavalry chasing them. Warriors would perform a successful rearguard action. Sibley's remaining forces would not pursue, allowing the cavalry to chase their quarry all the way to around Dead Buffalo Lake. Alone, they would withdraw back to friendly forces. Casualties were fairly light, with the U.S. forces suffering four casualties compared to eight on the Sioux side. Dead Buffalo Lake would actually be the site of another engagement between Sibley and the retreating Sioux, whose rearguard action had gone some 12 miles. Those of the war party in the Sioux camp had been reinforced, and so they would wish to strike the U.S. troops, maybe immobilizing their column by capturing or running off their supplies of pack mules. Sitting Bull was reportedly one of the reinforcing party and would participate in the battle on July 26th. 
artillery would open up from long range, and the native warriors would attempt to either flank their position or capture the mules. Sending Bull would reportedly count coup on one of the soldiers manning the mule train in this action. Now, counting coup, if you are unaware, is a practice amongst the Native Americans that is showing bravery in the face of an enemy and hopefully taking away their will to fight, perhaps, without having to actually kill them. So, it is a way in which you are lifting up your own warrior ethos and then doing it at the expense of an enemy. And if we know anything about Sitting Bull, there are a lot of accounts of his exploits. There's one instance where, pretty famous, where he decides, even under some heavy fire, he's going to sit in a field and calmly smoke his pipe, and he encourages other warriors to join him. There's a lot of instances like that in the life of Sitting Bull. I do also want to point out, too, we mentioned that artillery is actually fairly new against these tribes, and it would be pretty effective as a shock weapon in, in certain scenarios. Certainly, we talked here about Big Mound and how they use artillery, and that's going to scatter, uh, especially some of the non-combatants. They're going to be afraid of their artillery, so it is an interesting weapon that they have not come across as of yet, or at least most of them have not. Stout defense by the mounted rangers and several companies of infantry would thwart the attempts of the Sioux, the battle ending with one soldier killed compared to maybe as many as 15 Sioux. Sibley would continue his search for the Sioux to the Missouri River. On a map, this would be roughly through the middle of North Dakota. This gives us a good idea of how far the pursuit went. Alfred Sully would be moving up that river with a force of men numbering around a thousand. Having these two enemy columns would be not so good for the Sioux. And so they decided it would be advantageous to attack Sibley and his forces before they were able to combine with Sully and these additional troops. Sibley would deploy his men before reaching their camp at Stony Lake. From there, they would fend off probing attacks from the native warriors. These attacks were unable to find a weak spot, and so they would be called off. A common theme amongst all three of these engagements would be the inferior firepower the Sioux possessed. Either they're using antiquated firearms, or they are using more what we would consider more basic weapons, like bows and arrows and things, even though they were quite skilled with those as well. Across the Missouri River, they would retreat, the U.S. troops ending their pursuit. Sibley would not report any casualties, and for the Sioux, it is hard to tell how many of them were sustained, if any. While the U.S. forces would report a great victory, the Sioux would continue to not only harass Sibley, but they would also continue to launch raids into Minnesota. The campaign is actually going to conclude in September, so we will talk more of Sibley at that point. So we'll go ahead and call it a day there. We had some longer episodes, so it might seem like a little bit of a break while we have a shorter one here. We traced the movements of Lee back to the Rappahannock line. While it is possible Meade had a better opportunity to destroy Lee in Maryland, he had another opportunity to deal the Confederacy a setback at Manassas Gap while they trailed back south. 
We will pick up the story when Lee is settled at the Rappahannock River. This week, we also had the continued campaign against the Sioux with Henry Hastings Sibley. Next week, Lee is going to offer up his resignation, and there will be draft riots in the North. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>